You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org slash donate and contribute today. Good morning. Still morning, no? Late morning. Um, to, in, to reflect on the theme of this year's encounter, this urge for the truth, uh, we knew we needed uh, somebody with heart and mind. And that's why we invited Prof Professor Waldstein, a good friend of the encounter, a good friend of Father Giussani, a good friend of mine. And, um, and I'm sure that Mikael will help us uh, understand the magnitude of the theme and also it will help us do it in light of this publication. It's sold out already, so don't worry. You gotta buy it some other way. To give one's life for the work of another, which is a book by Father Giussani, published, just published. And, and in a sense, it's also the way in which we try to live the encounter as volunteers, giving our life for the work of another. Just a few biographical notes about Professor Waldstein, and then, of course, as always, you can go to the website and you will find pages and pages. Michael Waldstein is a professor of New Testament at the Franciscan University in Steubenville. Before this position, he was the Max Seckler Professor of Theology at Ave Maria University, where he became the first endowed chair of that university. He also served as the founding president of the International Theological Institute in Gaming, Austria. He is the author of various books, and the last one of which has been published uh, this past September, Glory of the Logos in the Flesh, St. John Paul's Theology of the Body. So let us welcome Professor Waldstein. Thanks, Ray. Thank you very much. Bishop Christophe Pierre, fellow bishops, my friends on the path of the charism of Don Giussani, I'm happy to be here and share with you. Yesterday I ran by accident back there into Bishop Pierre and it was a stab of joy for me. He remembered that 20 years ago we presented together the religious sense in Uganda. And I remember the memory came back to me then, the deep humanity and clarity of his analysis of problems in Uganda. What a name, Christophe Pierre. Christ carrier close to Peter. That's, that's where we want to be. Um, your sermon 
reflected this perfectly. So I thought the best way to give my lecture would be in one word, ditto. <laughs> Though I promised that I would do a talk and so the second best will have to do. Why does truth matter and how can we reach it? And taking off from the book, to give one's life for the work of another. Here's an overview of the chapters. There's an introduction. I'll talk about what Giussani calls the sign, his testament in a way, the brief formula, Vini Sancti Spiritus, Vini Per Mariam. It's like a dense jewel that needs to be unpacked. The rest of my talk is an attempt to unpack it with the help of that recent book. Then on Nietzsche and Giussani on reason, then a brief personal testimony from me, and then the main part of the talk is about that sign, that diamond that Giussani left us. First, the danger of the sign to be reduced in our scientific technological culture, then the sign in his new book, a parallel with John Paul's Theology of the Body, and finally, the sign in the Gospel of John. That bluish screen will appear every time in a transition from one section to the other so you know where you are in the talk. This is what uh, Don Giussani says about this diamond. I have applied in recent times, I have discovered in recent times with all my heart, deeply moved, the most complete formula that can be conceived from the Christian point of view. Come Holy Spirit, come through Mary, veni Sancti Spiritus, veni per Mariam. Now you could say, well, where's Jesus in this? Come Holy Spirit, come through Mary. That's, Jesus comes through her. A painting by Titian that portrays the moment of the Holy Spirit coming through her, into her, in the incarnation. Close up. If you look at this angel, a substantial angel, it's like a 500 ton interstellar battle cruiser <laughs> coming down to, spiritually speaking, of course. And here, the coming of the Holy Spirit in a stream of light. Further up close, the angel. Look at the wild hairdo of the angel. It's, it's remarkable. And look at the dignity of Mary. There's a sense of 
The angel says, do not be afraid. There's no panic fear. She draws her veil in front of her face, leans back her head a little bit, but there's a, there's a tremendous sense of composure at the same time, of peace. This is what Giussani says about Veni Sancti Spiritus Veni Per Mariam. Virgin, pure and beautiful. Beauty is the sign. And she is, as it were, a sacramental sign of the beauty of which, and there the Italian is per cui, which could also be translated by which, because of which, for the sake of which, God made the world. So then I'm glad to have left you a reminder of this rising always rising glory of our Christian life, the Vini Sancti Spiritus. You'll see the key terms of my talk are gonna be sign, beauty, and glory. In Bolivia, the Jesuits had founded in the jungle, in the villages, many communities that were extraordinary in their development. They taught them many, many things, among them music by the avarices of Portugal, of Spain, and of other powers. Those villages were destroyed. The old women in the villages preserved sheets of music. I don't know if after a few generations they knew what it was, then there was a Polish priest, a musicologist, who went through the jungle, befriended these old women, and collected these pieces of music that hadn't been heard for several hundred years, many of them composed by Indians. And I want to give you one example of that. It's on the beauty of Mary. sung by Indios.
for me, this resurrection of texts kept by the old women for centuries is a symbol of what Giussani did. Take the texts of the past, but that they are alive in the present. He quotes St. Augustine, in our hands are books, in our eyes, facts. In our hands are books, but we would not know how to read them without the other clause. In our eyes are facts, present facts in our eyes. Of course, Augustine is also thinking of Jesus. The Gospels talk about Jesus. That's a fact in our eyes through the text, but I think he means the present also. The presence of Jesus is nourished, comforted, proved by the reading of the Gospels and the Bible. But it is assured, it becomes evident among us through a fact, through facts that are presences. Maybe Archbishop Dolan thought of presences as one of those obscure terms, though it's something very simple. You are presences to me now. You're here, I see you. Your reality impresses itself on me. So the next section, Nietzsche and Giussani on reason. This is part of the topic that has been assigned to me. Oops. One day, the wanderer slammed the door shut behind him, came to a halt and wept. Then he said, this penchant and urge for what is true, real, non-apparent, certain, how I hate it. Nietzsche, son of a Lutheran pastor, there's a lot of irritation and anger with but he points out the inevitability of this search. In the same book, much earlier, there's another aphorism which complements this one. And I, I find that a fantastic aphorism. Most people lack intellectual conscience. They don't find it despicable to believe this or that, and to live accordingly, without first becoming aware of the final and most certain reasons for and against. What is the good of being good-hearted, subtle, even brilliant, if those who have these virtues tolerate limp desires? fabulous expression, limp desires in their beliefs and judgments. If they do not recognize the desire for certainty as the innermost desire and deepest need. Among some people I found hatred against reason and I respected them for it. In this way at least they're 
bad intellectual conscience betrayed itself. But to stand in the uncertainty and ambiguity of, Christian exi of human existence and not to ask, not to tremble with the desire and thrill of asking, this is what strikes me as despicable. What I look for first in every person is this desire. When I encountered Giussani first, I was struck exactly by this, by the intensity of his desire in raising questions and the pursuit of certainty. This is now from To Give One's Life on page 53. We cannot start off except from a love for reason, from a trust in reason. And this has made us perceive the value of reason as the first thing to clarify, which he does in the religious sense. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. If you look at these angels in Titian's um, Annunciation, in particular, if you look at these two faces here, they're profound faces, thoughtful faces. They look down at the event of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, of the incarnation of the Son of God, with, yes, with reverence, but it's not a superficial feeling. There's, there's depth and permanence of thought in their faces. Interestingly, there's also one angel here who seems to be somewhat distracted. Um, also, he's, he's quite ugly. The, the others are beautiful, but uh, I think this is in a way for Titian to generate contrasts. From the religious sense, reason follows different methods, develops different paths, depending on the object. The method is imposed by the object, Angel. Reason is life, a life faced with the complexity and multiplicity of reality, the richness of the real. Reason is agile, goes everywhere, travels many roads, the same angels from somewhat closer up. And then 
maybe my favorite text from the religious sense. The only condition for being truly and faithfully religious, the formula for the journey to the meaning of reality, is to live always the real intensely, without preclusion, without negating or forgetting anything. This amazing angel, it's an event an encounter that she did not exclude. Reason is awareness of reality according to the totality of its factors, often repeated in the religious sense. But here in the new book, in many places, also a good other formulation. Reason for us is the need for a total meaning. It is openness to reality according to the totality of its factors. That God is all in all, and we'll talk about that in a, in a minute, is a deep expression of reason for us. An opportunity to fully affirm its value. Let it be done to me according to your word, which your bishop spoke about, is an expression. God is all in all. Now, a brief testimony. How I met Jusani first and um, became involved in the movement. But it's not an image of the Madonna, not painted by Titian, this particular one. But I, I, I love it. Whether you call it beautiful, yeah, it has its own beauty. It's not, maybe beauty is not the right word. I was at the University of Dallas in 1981, finishing a doctoral thesis on beauty, philosophical account of beauty according to Hansus von Balthasar. And in Dallas, at the University of Dallas, there was nobody who really knew Balthasar very well. I studied philosophy to prepare for biblical studies. So in the fall of 81, Susie, my wife and I, we had one child then and one on the way. We moved to Rome and I wrote a letter to Balthasar asking him, are there any people in Rome who know your work? And he gave me two names, Jacques Servet, who is now head of the Casa Balthasar, and Marc Ouellet, who is now prefect of the Congregation for Bishops. So I became friends with with these two men. They led me to Santa Maria in Trastevere where the mass of the movement took place on Sundays and it was, we were both absolutely amazed by the vitality, the beauty of the service and then afterwards in the whole piazza, which is a great piazza, everybody gathered and 
There was a lot of, a lot of talk. And there we met Massimo and Carmen Borghese in particular and became friends with them. They accompanied us. Massimo took me for the, to the first event with Giussani. I remember it exactly as, as, as if it were yesterday. It was on building one's house on rock rather than sand. And I remember he, he knocked on the table, bang, bang, to indicate the solidity of rock. Of course, it was wood, but with his words, it sounded like granite. Um, it made a huge impression on me. We went to a number of events from 81 on, um, but Rome is very difficult. Often, America is called the land of unlimited possibilities. Susie, my wife, taking children to the doctor, filling out forms, etc., came up with the expression, land, excuse me, Italy is the land of unlimited impossibilities. <laughs> In the spring of 84, when I had finished the licentiate of the Biblicum, I was admitted to the doctoral program in New Testament at Harvard Divinity School. And in the same year, 84, there were spiritual exercises with Giussani in Fuji, south of Rome. And I talked to him, and he said that they were sending Cialini to Boston, Washington, and New York, three to Boston, so I offered to help them get settled. And we began doing a school of community. And through the friendship with them, we became involved. So 1981 to 2022, that's now 41 years. And it's been worth staying. An important factor for me was in those first years in which Giussani had sent Italians over to the United States, he came frequently to the United States to give talks. And since I knew Italian, I was the one who translated usually for him. So I would sit next to him, there he was, and he said a sentence and then I would translate it into, into English. And I fell in love with him. That's the only way to, to say it. If beauty is maybe not the right word, falling in love maybe not exactly the right word, but that's what it was. I wanted to remain in contact with that sign of life that I saw in Giussani. to live the real more intensely. Membership in the movement had a huge impact on my professional life as well. Not only um, my personal life. When I went through Harvard Divinity School, 
most of my professors were unbelievers. Some of them were believers. It seemed to me a little bit like these manuscripts preserved in the jungle of music that nobody played. Is it a cooking recipe? Is it a magical incantation? What was done with the biblical text was a huge variety of things. So far for the testimony. The sign reduced in our scientific technological culture. In a key text, Descartes, and he expresses the spirit of the age, says this. It's possible to reach knowledge that will be powerfully useful to life. And instead of the theoretical philosophy, which is now taught in the schools, we can find a practical one by which knowing the force and the actions of fire, water, air, stars, the heavens, and all the other bodies that surround us, as distinctly as we know the various skills of our artisans, we can employ them in the same way for all the uses they're fit for. And so make ourselves these words really have to sink in. Masters and possessors of nature. That was the great ambition. Now, if that is the ambition, making oneself master, certain consequences follow. Leon Cass, in an important book, spells them out very clearly. Seek knowledge, and knowledge will give you power. But it would be more accurate to say that the new science sought first power over nature and derivatively found a way to reconceive nature that yielded the empowering kind of image. Seek power and you will devise a way of knowing that gives it to you. And that knowledge, not surprisingly, is mechanics. I will skip the Aristotle account of mechanics. Um, it combines mathematics with physical observation. Francis Bacon, who was also one of the main proponents of this revolution, says Aristotle said it best. Physical observation and mathematics generate practical knowledge or mechanics. Now mathematics deals with quantity, with items that can be set in quantitative relations. And in the new approach to knowledge, what can be grasped mathematically tends to stand out as clearly known and objectively real. Whereas what can't be grasped mathematically tends to be seen as a mere subjective impression, as a mere appearance projected like a movie onto the indifferent screen of nature. Because nature looked at mathematically is indifferent. Here's Chusani's analysis of the phenomenon. The reduction that takes place for man, insofar as he gives in to the common mentality, is a division, a separation, the struggle between sign and appearance. 
and as a consequence, the reduction of the sign to appearance. The more we realize what a sign is, the more we understand how vile and disastrous it is to reduce a sign to appearance. Goodness, beauty, this is me speaking now, life, knowledge, love, male, female, the divine, none of these can be grasped mathematically. And many people take account of that by saying, those are not facts, those are values. And values are personal or social preferences. And the axiom, very widespread, is you can't argue from facts to values. For example, biological sex signifies nothing for what it means to live one's sexuality as a man or a woman. Gender is a social construct or a personal preference. There's a Jewish prayer which has come under some attack, but maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but I understand it differently. Baruch Hashem Eloheinu Melech Blessed are you, Hashem, the name, they don't pronounce the divine name, we say Lord, they say Hashem, Eloheinu, our God, King of the universe, for not making me a woman. <laughs> if you look at that statement from the point of view of identity politics, it's a put down. But, when I thought about this prayer, I thought, what if I were a woman? Then I would have probably to be married to a man. And that doesn't attract me in the least. <laughs> the apparent gender euphoria in that statement is not a euphoria about the male sex but about the feminine sex, because men are oriented toward women. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded, and as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. On the day of our wedding, this was the image of my wife. That's what I was attracted to. That's why I was glad not to be a woman. <laughs> because I wanted this woman, and I wanted to have children with her. These are the first two children. In the background, you see our first, and in the foreground, our, our second child. And since then, the number has grown considerably. Um, the oldest on the left is 41 years old, and the youngest on the right is 21 years old, and they do various things. But in the middle is my wife, and I still think she's immensely beautiful. 
I wanted children with her because she was beautiful and attractive. And, and there they are. The sign now in Jusani is to give one's life for the work of another. And I'm going to approach it from terms that you're more familiar with, namely encounter and mystery. In Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, you have this exchange. Ah, Juliet, if the measure of thy joy be heaped like mine, let rich music's tongue unfold the imagined happiness that both receive in either by this dear encounter. So their encounter is an event that takes place that contains in itself the promise of a rich future. It takes staying with the event to discover that future. Of course, Rome and Juliet both die. Also, what Juliet says is fantastic. Conceit, where, where conceit means not illusion, but imagining something future. More rich in matter than in words. They're but beggars that can count their worth. But my true love is grown to such excess, I cannot sum up half my sum of wealth. That's, that's the nature of encounter. Promises, sometimes our confidence in that promise can wane, but it's there. In Shakespeare's Tempest, there's a similar scene. Prospero, who's the main character, his daughter Miranda, and he hopes that she'll fall in love with Ferdinand, because that would reconcile much. Fair encounter of two most rare affections. Heavens rain grace on that which breeds between them. Then Ferdinand asks her, wherefore weep thou? And she, and, and here again you see the nature of an encounter in its future. At mine unworthiness that dare not offer what a desire to give, namely herself, that's what she wants to give, much less take what I shall die to want, want in the sense of be without. A text of Newman that comes very, very close to Giussani. The outward exhibition of infinitude is mystery. And the mysteries of nature and of grace are nothing but the mode in which his infinitude encounters us and is brought home to our mind. So there's something finite, but it contains, it expresses a depth that's inexhaustible. But now to Giussani. And here a different image of, of Mary focus on the beauty of Mary. This is the great image of the Assumption of Mary in Santa Maria Gloriosa dei Frari in Venice. 
Now, a series of Chusani texts. They're hard, so bear with me. I think they're the central part of the book, of, of the new book. Um, mystery, in other words, God, and sign. So he begins the sentence, then he has a parenthetical remark, and then he returns to the sentence, mystery and sign. Okay. In other words, contingent reality inasmuch as it, is always, as it always recalls something else. Even the tiniest stone, in order to be itself, has to be conceived of as made by God. Has to be a reminder of the source of being. Mystery and sign, in a certain sense, coincide in the sense that the mystery is the depth of the sign. The sign points to the presence of the deep mystery of God the Creator and the Redeemer, of God the Father. In looking at this image, the top of the ascension, you could raise the question, well, what's the representation of God? And you can give two answers, I think. The light that comes from an immeasurable distance, it's a tunnel of angels that goes back and back and back and you lose sight of the end. And then in the foreground is the dark figure of the Father. It seems to be both are representations of the divinity. Mary is at the moment before she sees. She doesn't see yet. She looks in a different direction. She would have to turn around to see God. The sign indicates the presence of the mystery, of the deep mystery. Mystery is the depth of the sign. It points out to our eyes the presence of something other. Presence, easy, it's there. I encounter it. Of the deep mystery for all things, it points it out to our eyes, to our ears, to our hands, an echo of first letter of John, beginning. The mystery becomes an experience through the sign. Of course, the sign par excellence, and that has to be said right away, is the cross. And I'll return to that. This is again Titian. It's a very high painting, and most of the drama takes place in the heavens. You see the lightning coming down, and the flow of blood and water from his side. So, mystery and sign, in a certain sense, coincide. And the mystery becomes experienced through the sign. This explains to the Christian the value of the sacraments. When he discovers that the whole of reality, another key word for Giussani, close to presence, reality is what you can actually bump into. It imposes itself by its presence. Is built of this method of God the Creator. Reality comes from the Creator, having within it a reference to the Creator, which it demonstrates. In the intimacy of our relationship with things, it brings out the perception of another, of something other. You see this in the stretching out of the disciples here at the bottom of the picture of 
James in the orange on the right, John in the orange on the left. They're similar in color to Mary. Here, a text where three times he begins the sentence, and only the third time does he conclude it. It's a, it's a hard text. Oops, I wanted to go back. Pazienza with the electronics. Okay. So, mystery and sign, in a certain sense, coincide. And the mystery becomes experience through the sign. This explains to the Christian the value of the sacraments when he discovers that the whole reality is built of this method of God the Creator. Reality comes from the Creator having within it a reference to the Creator, which it demonstrates in the intimacy of our relationship with things, it brings out the perception of another. Sacrament is different from all the other signs. Here is the threefold sentence. In the sacraments invented or created by Christ with the purpose of generating a new people in the world, so that it, that is that people, might flow like a river into the waters of the sea of mankind as the initial revelation within history of the infinite mystery that man goes to meet at the end of his days. It is the beginning in history of the eternal. And again, starting, in the sacraments created by Christ, by the God-man, by God who became man, Jesus of Nazareth, he was the one who made them. He was the one who suggested them. In the sacraments, the sign reaches the point of complete identity with the mystery, as in the Eucharist. There it's he himself. I will go on ahead a little bit. The sacramental method. How much our spiritual life has to be disposed according to the sacrament. In fact, what is changed under the impulse, the light and the tenderness of baptism and the other sacramental signs is called church, mystical body of Christ. So, reality, so reality made as a sign of God leads everything back to the vision of Christ. Treating creation well means knowing Christ in order to know God. This is the beginning of a change in man. The stretching up of these disciples, it's a huge change in them. And the beauty of Mary is central. Now, a parallel with St. John Paul's Theology of the Body. In one of the talks of Giussani, he reports that John Paul said to him that the method of the movement is also the method he, John Paul himself, embraces. 
Let's go back to the Gisani texts explaining this jewel, Veni Sancti Spiritus, Veni Per Mariam. Virgin, pure and beautiful. Beauty is the sign. And she is, as it were, a sacramental sign of the beauty of which, by which, because of which, for the sake of which, God made the world. So then I'm glad to have left you a reminder of this rising, always rising glory of our Christian life, the Veni Sancta Spiritus. The first manuscript page of St. John Paul's Theology of the Body is this. In the left corner, you have AMDG, at Maiorum Dei Gloriam, to the greater glory of God. In the right corner of that first page, you have Tota Pulcra is Maria. You're all beautiful, Mary. Quote from the Song of Songs, where it's, it's not Mary, but my friend. It's the antiphon for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And the date on which he wrote that first page is 8-12-74. That is December 8th, 1974, which is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. One of the most remarkable things about the human body is its expressive power, a portrait by Titian. But even if we look at each other, we see each other look. The spiritual inner reality is accessible to us. It's not true that matter is a neutral screen into which we project things. The same, or in a way similar, about the feminine. The sense of interiority in that phase is overwhelming. So John Paul says, the body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible, into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden from eternity in God, and thus to be a sign of it. In man, created in the image of God, the very sacramentality of creation, the sacramentality of the world was thus in some way revealed. In fact, through his bodily visibility, through his masculinity and femininity, man becomes the visible sign of the economy of truth and of love. In a book that's available out there, this is not so much self-advertisement, but I think it's important to, for us as a movement also to become aware of, of John Paul. Uh, I wrote a book, The Glory of the Logos in the Flesh, on Pope John Paul's Theology of the Body, and it's permeated by insights of Giussani that I learned. This is the outline. I won't go into detail on that. The sign in the Gospel of John. That's the end of my remarks. First, the purpose and structure of the Gospel of John. Jesus 
did many other signs in the presence of his disciple which are not written in this book. This is at the end of the gospel where he states the purpose of the gospel. But these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Signs are central. The book itself is a writing of signs. That's the first purpose. Signs lead to faith and faith lead to, leads to life. Here the image of John contemplating. Now an image of the outline of the Gospel of John. It begins with a week. It ends with two weeks, the Passion Week and then the week of the octave of Easter. On the right side, you have what John calls, in a very particular sense, signs. The first sign is wine at Cana, then come two healings. The fourth sign is bread, then comes a healing and a raising. And the seventh is the blood and water from his side and the unbroken bones of the lamb, the paschal lamb, the flesh of which is to be eaten. Do you see the Eucharistic arrangement of this order of signs? How are we doing with time? In the prologue, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. We rightly say, when we say the Angelus, and dwells among us, because the Greek is iskenosen enhemin, and that's pitching the tent. And once you've pitched the tent, you live in it, so you're there. He doesn't break down the tent. And we have seen his glory Glory as of an only begotten from the Father, full of gift and truth. And there's a bridge between that verse in the prologue, 114, and what the evangelist says at the very end of the first sign in Cana, turning water into wine. This Jesus did as the beginning of signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, excuse me, this Jesus did as the beginning of science in King of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer run and donation funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. A brief look at glory, at least, we need to take. Because glory is, is, is a rich term. Try to unfold it in seven steps. Glory is light. The sun looks down on everything with its light. And the work of the Lord is full of his glory. This light is communicated, but it remains mysterious. The brightness was like the sun. 
Rays came forth from his hand. Where his power lay hidden. There you have the sign. You have something in the foreground that suggests something deeper. It has power to transform. We are transformed into the same image. It's close in meaning to beauty. Jerusalem put on forever the beauty of the glory from God. It outweighs everything. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with that glory. And it's inexhaustibly rich because the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. Um, Chosani loves, and you spoke about the opening scenes of the disciples staying. Since my time is short, I will skip through that. It's amazing, staying turns out to be uh, remarkable. For example, in, in 15, staying, the same word as where are you staying in this stayed with him, returns in this way, I'm the true vine. Stay in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it stays in the vine. Whoever stays in me and I in him, he is the one who bears much fruit. If anyone does not stay in me, he withers. If you stay with me, in me, and my words stay in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. What is it that we wish? We wish happiness, fullness of life. This is what Jesus holds out as the promise. Cana and Golgotha. Cana is the first of the signs. Golgotha is the last of the signs. And the amazing thing is that John constructs these two scenes exactly in parallel. If you look on the left, you first have the place and the person's present. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. The mother of Jesus was there. Those are the only two scenes in the Gospel of John where the mother of Jesus is present. So she's already there and Jesus is Invited. She's like the book ends. She remains at the end. Well, the soldiers did this, standing near the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister Mary. Then comes an introduction to Jesus' words. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they don't have wine. When Jesus said, when Jesus saw the disciple, saw the mother, most translations say his mother, but it says the mother in the Greek. Big difference. He said to the mother, woman, look your son. Then he said to the disciples, look your mother. And in Cana, Jesus said to her, woman. In all of Greek literature, there's not a single example where a son addresses his mother as woman. Otherwise, it's quite regular. Jesus addresses the Samaritan woman as woman, but to address one's mother as woman is strange. But woman is the name Adam gave, according to the Septuagint, to Eve.
My hour has not yet come. The hour of Jesus is the hour of his passion. So Jesus seems to understand the invitation of providing wine as the arrival of his hour. I think already in view of, of Golgotha. From that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Then his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And this is what Jesus does. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, so the scripture would be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Then you have the water jar. Six stone water jars were standing there. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. There's a good wine. There's the previous wine that ran out. And there's the sour wine of the passion. For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, which is a total of about 1,000 regular size wine bottles. If you have a wine cellar of that size, you have, you have a lot. Jesus said to them, fill the water jars with water, and they filled them to the end. And these themes of fullness return in the parallel. There's a jar, he drinks it, they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had taken the sour wine, he said, it's finished. Then he bowed his head and gave over the spirit. Then comes a scene of recourse to the responsible person to order things. It's the chief steward and it's Pilate. But the end is important. You have kept the good wine until now. When they came to Jesus and saw that all, that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. That's interpreted as being, he is the Paschal lamb, the bones of which are not to be broken. The flesh eaten, yes, but the bones not to be broken. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once came out blood and water. Seems very evident that in this parallel, the good wine, in a way, is a pre-announcement of the passion. Just as the Mass now is a memorial, Cana is a pre-memorial of the passion. This Jesus did as the beginning of signs in Cain of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. One more item from the slideshow. Which is decisive for Giussani, namely the unity of the church a sign. In chapter 17, Jesus prays twice for unity, patterned in exactly the same way, and the commandment of love in chapter 13 is the same. So let's take a look. 
I do not ask you for them alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. That all may be one. And now pay close attention what being one means here. It's not simply a horizontal unity between human beings. That all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they too may be in us. So being in us is the mode of union. But then decisive, that the world may believe that you sent me. So the unity of Christians is to be a visible sign, a persuasive sign, a missionary sign, as you put it, Archbishop, of, for the world, it radiates out, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's a future desired result that the Father will bring about in good time. But there's already something present. The glory you have given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one as we are one. And now again, observe exactly what the relations are. I in them and you in me. It's a descending line, the Father in the Son, the Son in us. That's Christian unity. That they may be completed into one. That the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them as you loved me. And John formulates the commandment of love in exactly the same way, following the same structure. These two that clauses sandwiching the as phrase and then the consequence. I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That you too may love one another. In this all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. If you allow me then to return to the beginning, if I still have three minutes.
So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.